All right, everyone, uh, welcome back to another episode of The Political Adventurist. Um, I'm here with a friend in my philosophy class, actually, um, that I haven't had the pleasure of talking to um, up until this point. We've really only communicated through GroupMe and Instagram to kind of set this up, and I was really interested by his um, ideology and philosophy. So uh, before we begin, uh, this is going to be definitely a content-packed episode. Uh, Harrison, please uh, tell the people a little bit about yourself, maybe a little bit about you know, your, your ideology, whatever, just give a little background. So, uh, the people get to know you. Awesome. Uh, hi, my name is Harrison Picayo. Um, I met, uh, and we, we, we met through our philosophy class and we talked a lot about, about, you know, ethics, philosophy, and my particular approach, I tend to be, you know, a leftist. So I think about the economy in terms of not only as a sort of economic structure, but also as a social structure that shapes the way that we think about things. And, you know, it's really awesome to have the opportunity like this to talk and discuss uh, ideas. And I'm a, I'm a philosophy major. I have this, I went to philosophy for the money mug. Yes. To, to Love prove it. it. So I'm honored for this opportunity. Hell yeah. All right. So then let's dive into it. So I'm curious as to how you view economics as a social system, as well as obviously an economic system. So can you go, go into that a little bit more for me? Yeah. So, you know, we think about the economy writ large, uh, like be it any sort of particular political system. So capitalism um, or say even social democracy, communism, et cetera, the way that we relate to commodities and the way that we go about uh, buying, selling and producing things shapes the type of interactions that we have. And this isn't only a sort of a, a philosophical statement that has to do with the way in which, you know, the, the say, think about the interaction that you have with your boss, with your coworkers. That's a very particular type of relationship that, you know, ends up bleeding out into the rest of the world. And something that we can notice with capitalism is think about the idea of oftentimes a boss will say, treat the workplace like your family. That what ends up happening is the logic of the workplace ends up replicating itself in a variety of other aspects, such that even things like the nuclear family and the type of family models that we have are, are the ones that are most economically productive. So when I say that social and economic systems are intertwined, what that means to say is the type of relationships that we have and the type of relationships that are sort of deemed as accessible uh, are done so because they're economically productive or uh, successful. And that's true of all economic systems. That's not just true of capitalism, but it is to say that, you know, the economy and the social sphere are always interconnected. I think that's a very interesting point. I mean, um, and yeah, as you said, it could, it could really apply to any form of ideology, capitalism or communism or, or Marxism or anything like that. Um, and I, I would tend, I would definitely agree with that is that the relationships that we develop in the society are definitely uh, with some kind of exchange or some kind of economic loss and gain uh, definitely attached to them. So I guess my lead in question then would be, uh, what is the ideal economic coupled with social system that you would envision for America? And then obviously as a follow-up question, how would that be compatible with what the country has been founded on? Because there's a very specific ideological bias that it's been founded on. Uh, so I'm curious as to your thoughts on that. Yeah, so first, as far as the, the best possible economic system, I would consider myself a leftist and in many ways a communist. And what that means is looking towards a variety of different sort of communist groups that have worked to implement their philosophical ideas into economic policy. So I think in America, the most important example would probably be the Black Panther Party. Mm -hmm. The Black Panther Party working primarily in inner cities to mobilize uh, black, primarily black, but also organizing alongside as well queer, Asian, and, a and even white working class people in order to sort of bring socialist ideals to the forefront. Uh, and the reason why I think that is important is because, you know, a reorientation away from uh, solely capitalist market-driven uh, intentions is necessary to solve certain social problems as well as problems like the environment. And I think you, you said something, or the way that you asked the question, I think is really interesting because you said, how does that, how do you think that is sort of compatible with American views? And uh, I think the American Revolution is a very interesting historical event mm -hmm. because something that we need to think about in the history of revolutions is it's in a lot of ways a fairly conservative revolution because a lot of the time the people were sort of, if you think about say the role of slavery during the American Revolution, you have them saying, oh, we're being treated like slaves that we own by the, by the crown. So we need to rebel in order to sort of preserve 
our economic system, which is not to say that the American Revolution was wholesale bad, but something I really kind of respect about the American Revolution and specifically the founding fathers is they said that if, if the government ever becomes ty as tyrannical as the crown, you should revolt against us. That built into American democracy is this idea of revolt as a necessary aspect to maintain social values. And I think that's totally true. I think that, you know, a lot of even even like I think uh, things like tar and feathering, which is we think of like deeply as colonial America. Uh, I mean, perhaps this is a hot take. I actually think that's a very effective form of political advocacy because it, it forces politicians to adhere to the will of the people. And an example of this would actually be the George Floyd protests, where in Minneapolis, where the police actually kind of sort of were abolished, uh, one of the ways that came about is the, the mayor was addressing a crowd of people and the crowd of people chanted, are you going to defund the police? And he said, well, you know, and, you know, tried to do political speak. And then they asked it again, are you going to defund the police? And when he said no, everyone booed him. And I think what that shows, and this is really at the core of American ideals, is we should hold political representatives accountable for their actions. And I think that's one of the ways in which I think we can have sort of leftist, socialist, communist ideals that do sort of fall in line with some aspects of the American project. I think that's a very interesting, a very, very definitely a hot take. Um, I've actually never really had uh, someone who would self-describe as like a full like leftist or uh, I believe you describe yourself as a communist or things like that. I've actually never had that on the podcast. This is definitely going to be interesting. But um, as for the tar and feathering example that you provided, um, I definitely see the reason that you come across that politicians aren't really held accountable for their actions, you know, especially when it comes to things like the military industrial complex, which is, you know, taking the lives of so many Americans. Look at like George Bush's war in Iraq, for example, that was essentially, and I'm saying this is someone who tends to lean to the right, was a war essentially for oil. And Dick Cheney obviously spent meant uh, made money off of it and spent it towards his heart surgery, which is obviously totally unacceptable. But, you know, that's obviously a, a popular thing. But um, I still feel that we can, in kind of a nonviolent way, uh, this is a little bit of a naive opinion that I have, honestly, and that's uh, not really, um, I guess you could say, uh, direct to the issue. I mean, the thing is here, here okay, listen, I feel that because the debate, okay, let me let me phrase this. The debate that we have over how to uh, establish a fair and free society both at the same time is really, I think, a question of human nature. I think that fundamentally, while there are so many examples in today's competitive market of big businesses exploiting the workers, such as Jeff Bezos, who is you know, not paying federal and state level taxes and creating terrible working conditions for his workers, there are so many examples of that. I still naively believe that people tend to be uh, goodwilled. And this is the kind of process that I'm going to work through with this. When I advocate for lowering of taxes on a specific business, I'm not saying that the business person uh, must obviously prosper so that all of humanity will prosper. What I say uh, when I want to say lower taxes, for example, is I think that with that increased profit comes a, a commitment to obviously better the people that are under him. So with that extra money from say taxes and things like that, that you're from money that you're not paying in taxes, um, you should spend on increasing the conditions or bettering the conditions of your workers so that they can increase, they can create a better product because they're in a better working environment. So um, to finally respond to the point that you brought up, which is a little bit of a winding road, but just kind of like a, a background, um, I'm not, I don't entirely agree with the tar and feathering approach being a, a good political tactic, uh, because I feel that there are other maybe financial and political and diplomatic ways that people can tend to be influenced. And there's a lot of examples against that. And there's a, a quite a few examples for that. But I feel like it's important to, um, I feel like, and you can obviously agree or disagree on this, um, that it's kind of a question of human nature. And I believe that human nature tends to be uh, good for society. And that's a very, uh, something that's definitely easily disagreed with uh, and I totally understand that uh so yeah I guess I, just your response to that oh I, I actually so I think what you said about human nature to an extent is correct I, I do think that human nature is not inherently violent or destructive and I I'm, I'm a little wary to talk about human nature mm -hmm. only because we we think of it as so a part of this is influence I'm actually uh 
one of the classes I'm taking right now, I was invited to join the Source Project, with the, which is a research program at Binghamton. And the class we're taking is uh, What is Human Nature and Moving Beyond Human Nature. So it's a class, it's an anthropology class that talks about the development of civilizations throughout history and how our ideas of human nature has changed. And one of the things that it's really told, really taught me is that human nature is fundamentally collaborative. That conflict, like the idea that uh, of, of conflict occurring amongst humans is a very recent phenomenon. Even think like capitalism, economic, economic structure, capitalism has existed for less than 1% of human history, but we make it seem as if it is a, a natural innate part of human civilization. So the point at which I'm sort of going to, to disagree with you about is that I think human nature is fundamentally collaborative, that all throughout history, especially very, very early history, we see human civilizations rarely going to conflict, usually either choosing to leave or collaborate amongst themselves to create solutions that I think the sort of politics that we have right now is, is deeply against our own nature, which is to be with each other, to help, to communicate, uh, etc. And I think going off of that, so you mentioned the point of say like lowering taxes of like, it is uh, like, like almost a trickle down economics of like, if you lower exactly. taxes, that money will go. And while I do feel that that like is how it should be, because corporations don't actually have the incentive to follow through on that process, when taxes are lowered, and we see this, especially with like Reagan and Thatcher, who instituted these projects, that only like, the, the glass didn't pour down, the glass just got bigger. So very little of that actually ended up trickling down that while it was you know in intention in order to help these people, at the end of the day, the people instituting those politics kind of knew that that wasn't how it worked because these were the right-wing people who were beholden to these interests. So I think because of that, and then going on to your last point, I'm, I'm sort of following the winding road. Yeah, it's, I, I, I made a stupid point, but go on. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I, I actually, I, I think your point is really interesting and you articulated it very well. Uh, you mentioned sort of um, the tarring feathering being bad because there are other approaches. And you mentioned earlier, like nonviolence. And I'm going to disagree with you on the point of nonviolence because I think we think about nonviolence wrong. We're taught to think about it in terms of like Martin Luther King of, you know, instead of uh, being violent, he chose to be nonviolent and do nonviolent protests. And eventually that sort of got through their way and the president and the government decided to pass the Civil Rights Act. But that's actually not what happened. And the actual history of it is a little bit more complicated because the reason why Martin Luther King was able to be effective is because of groups like the Black Panthers and more militant groups that were saying, hey, if you don't accept this nonviolent approach, we're going to be violent and riot. We're going to force you into a position where you have to accept these civil liberties and this sort of smaller reform as opposed to revolution. And unless you do that, then we'll riot. And that's how the Civil Rights Act passed. And even then, afterwards, Martin Luther King was assassinated by the US government because he started talking about labor and labor and capitalism. I so the point that. being is while nonviolence and other approaches are always important, it really is important to be sort of have a form of direct action and make sure these politicians really are held accountable. Yeah. So what you described, uh, the failure of trickle down economics is that the top at the business only get uh, richer and that the people at the bottom don't really get recompensated is exactly what I've been wrestling with actually lately in preparing for this. I don't really have a good answer against that. You know, in American history, there's, you know, I would say, you know, the only the really the good examples I could cite are very local to me. Like, for example, like I, even like my mom, I know this is like a stupid example to bring up, but like my mom, for example, is a landlord. And regularly, and every time the contracts need to be renegotiated, uh, every single time she would try to, and this is to the best of my knowledge, I don't know everything about my mom's business, but um, she would try to uh, negotiate the rents, rents in a way that it was, she was still obviously getting some kind of profit, but they were still uh, attainable for the for the tenant someone living there so what you describe is totally what what's what's happened and and i like to think in the ideal a little bit too much and i think that's exactly why i wanted to have you on is because you, you're very ground you're very reality you're very educated in the american political system very grounded in reality i feel so um my i guess i guess counter to uh to that would be um, if we could encourage and i know it would have to take some degree of, of violence i guess um, or some degree of authoritarianism, uh, which I'm not a full-on libertarian. I there are like I'm not like all the way down the political compass. I guess you could say um, it would take that kind of um, 
force mentality change to for business owners to say, hey, listen, if you're getting tax credits, because I believe that, and as you said, you pointed, you basically pointed me out very well that I believe that tax credits or lower taxes should incentivize the owner, should obviously not what happened. You can have like Bezos. I keep citing him. I keep citing Bezos, Musk, who's taking lithium from Bolivia. Um, it's not exactly what is happening, but I feel like with a certain degree of with a certain degree of the government pressing down on these businesses to reinvest in their workers, which I believe would be in their best interest because, and I know um, you, you actually countered me on this point when we talked in, in philosophy class that one time I brought up Henry Ford and I brought up, I brought him up as kind of like this ideal capitalist that he would uh, invest in his workers and give them free cars and allow them to invest in the stock market. But I believe what you mentioned is that uh, that would make uh, people more like unfeeling beings almost. Um, but I feel that that is a, uh, a, a, a good alternative if we encourage a, a typical mindset, which is again, very naive, very naive stuff I, I, I like to propose. Um, but if we encourage a type of mindset where if you're getting specific uh, benefits from the government, like lower taxes that you have to, or you definitely should um, reinvest it back into your workers, because that's what's going to be best for your business. It's going to keep the economy moving. So um, I guess your thoughts on how realistic, and I know exactly, well, I don't know exactly what you're going to say, but like, I have a feeling of what you're going to say. How realistic is it that we can get these business magnates to change their mentality when it comes to the exact failures of capitalism that you described with Reagan and Thatcher? Because I'd love for capitalism to work exactly how I think immaturely, you know, um, but that it's clear that's not realistically the situation that what you described is obviously a big pitfall of trickle down economics. So your thoughts on that? Yeah. So actually, before I get into that, I'd like to talk a little bit about the example you talked about with Henry Ford, because and this is this is something that people don't know a lot about. But Henry Ford is maybe one of the most evil human beings in human history for two reasons. One, absurdly anti-Semitic. He would put copies of I believe it was the Global Jew in each car that he produced in order wow. to and it was actively support a supporter of the Nazis. And Hitler cited him as one of the greatest Americans alive because of how anti-Semitic he was. And something important is the, the Ford factory line in many ways is the birth of modern capitalism because he was one of the first to really take advantage of the assembly line not only the assembly line, not only as a mode of, of economic production, but also as a mode of social production. He really did think of workers solely as workers. And he marked the sort of shift in which capitalism became not only an economic system where you go to work, you clock out and then you go home and you're just another person to the point at which being a worker was your identity. His ideal society was where you worked for eight hours, you shopped for eight hours, and then you slept for eight hours to the point where the act of consumption and the act of production was shaped your entire life. Like that's the sort of ideal society, but he was also just a insane person period. Mm -hmm. um, but he, but a part of that was investing in his workers that uh, the, his, his sort of drive and his uh, idea behind investing in his workers is, you know, the more the worker felt a part of the company, the more they'd want to work, which in a sense is true. Like it's always good for say workers to have a stake in their company. But the reason why he wanted that is because he, he wanted each person to be a worker first and foremost, and a person second, which is the very sort of scary, violent part. And I think that actually leads into the second point that I'm making, which is like how realistic or feasible is, you know, taking down trickle down economics and sort of establishing more socialist policies in America. And I think it's definitely becoming more and more viable. So like Bernie Sanders was able to go on Fox News and get a standing ovation. I saw because that at the end of the day, a lot of even like a lot of Trump-esque right-wing people agree more so with Bernie Sanders because he's actually speaking to them. That so many people have been destroyed by the 2008 financial crisis, have been destroyed by the opioid epidemic, have been destroyed by really modern racial capitalism, but the Democratic Party is doing nothing to reach to them. And Bernie Sanders was the person that did. So all of those people that felt estranged by it and went to Trump, like, so, so something interesting is a lot of people that voted for Obama voted for Trump. In the, in the 2016 election, mm -hmm. because Obama offered them hope. Obama in many ways failed. Okay, what's next? Your choice is between Hillary Clinton and Trump. Hillary Clinton is saying you're a basket of deplorables and while Trump is actually going to you. So that's why those people voted for Trump because he was the only person that sort of saw them. And the point I'm making is 
you know, socialist policies are so, and also not even amongst the sort of white working class, but also amongst Gen Z and primarily people of color within Gen Z that socialist ideals are becoming more and more popular because at the end of the day in America, socialism is the result of people like the Black Panthers. So the reason why New York City, I, I don't, I'm fairly sure this is true of upstate schools, but I know for New York City schools, the reason why there's free breakfast is because of the Black Panthers, is because the Black Panthers forced the state government to adopt a free breakfast program because this, the Black Panthers had a, state, had a free breakfast program. And the point being is that, you know, so many of the actual popular legislation and ideas that we have in America are the result of socialists. And that's becoming, as you know, socialism is becoming less of a boogeyman, it's becoming more and more popular and more and more able to be talked about. And with more and more people going on strike against people like Amazon and Tesla, you know, late, the, the power of, of mobilized labor is becoming more accessible and popular. So I do think the future is fairly bright for the left in America. Well, I think you bring up a very excellent point and to kind of relate it to a philosophical sense, I actually didn't know that Henry Ford was such an outspoken anti-Semite. And obviously I, I really, I don't have any uh, premonitions on the character of Ford. I only really cited or try to cite uh, his, uh, well, only cite his uh, economic philosophy. I'm actually kind of, you know, I'm a Jew myself. So um, I, that's actually pretty awful to hear. Um, but at the end of the day, what you highlight is something, a pretty important philosophical difference. And I said in the last episode that I kind of take this into a philosophical uh, track is you're looking at the motive behind the actions that he wants workers to be the first and foremost, what people become. Um, and I'm kind of looking at the consequences. And I think you kind of see what's exactly forming here. I'm a little bit more of a consequentialist, a utilitarian, and you're a little bit more of deontological reasoning. You like to look at the motive behind the actions uh, rather than the consequences, which I think is an excellent philosophical debate, um, which can definitely continue on later in the episodes. But, but another point that you brought up very well was that the Democrat Party hasn't really done uh, a good job of connecting to the people in the way that leftist thinkers would have hoped. And that is why, even though I keep, I, I used to say when it was uh, Trump v. Clinton, obviously in 2016, um, I would always say, at least it's not Sanders, at least it's not Sanders. That was like this hardball, like conservative, like non-intellectual in 2016. I was just like in a Ben Shapiro face. It was terrible. You know, don't, don't even. Um, but now that I'm kind of like, look, I looked at, I saw that video that you referenced where he got a standing ovation on Fox News and like Brett Baer was like sitting there like shocked. Um, is I think that's even independent of ideology is that the reason that the two party system is so like terrible is because their constituents because their approach has really I feel been to the interests of their own political power and two examples I'm going to cite are gerrymandering and simply just the Senate procedural rules. Gerrymandering, obviously, I'm sure, as you know, is just reordering districts to try to maintain political power as much as possible based on voter distribution. Um, and obviously, the Senate procedural things that I'm going to mention are like, for example, McConnell um, citing the Biden rule when he uh, refused to hear for um, Merrick Garland uh, in 2016 when Antony Scalia had just passed away as a Supreme Court justice. And then he rushed Amy Coney Barrett to the seat of the Supreme Court. And someone who, you know, happened to, I, I do happen to like Trump, or I did happen to like Trump, I did support him. Uh, I could see that was obviously like a scummy political tactic, and it kind of fed more into my underlying understanding that the two-party system is bad. And, and, you know, the funny thing is that there was like a report, and I just heard about this in my Paul Sci class, actually, um, that the DNC chair in the 2016 or 2020 president, one of the two actually did not, or the DNC chairwoman, I believe it was, um, did not want Sanders to win the election. So I believe that's why Clinton got the nomination, even though there were Kind of, there's kind of evidence that suggests that uh, Sanders could have taken that nomination should have been a really unbiased uh, uh, primary. So I think that's an interesting point. What I was going to go on is, to say is um, I feel like that's what you describe as independent of idea, independent of party, is that whatever ideology you are, you have to find a way to communicate to the average working person, I feel. For Trump, that was saying, you know, we'll stand by American jobs, we'll institute these protectionist platforms. And while maybe economically speaking, you know, free trade is definitely a better alternative, um, it spoke to the average person. For Obama saying, you know, uh, yes, we can. And, you know, being this kind of beacon of hope. And he did, you know, obviously, as, as you said, failed in some aspects to that 
to that promise. Um, I feel like that what you describe is what I hope to be at least, uh, which is very naive again, um, independent of party. So do you think it's realistic that with the two party system, and this is kind of going off, off track of the notes that I had planned, which is excellent. Um, do you think that realistically with the two party system that we can get uh, politicians that actively care about the, the people in America? Very blunt question. Uh, but do you think that instead of going for power grabs like we see in Senate in the Senate procedurals and uh, gerrymandering, do you think we can really ever get a, a politician that's devoted to the well-being of the country as a whole, no matter of ideology or political party? I think, so I think that's a great question. Um, I think that even if we could get a politician that like truly kind of does care about the people. And I think, you know, if you think about like the squad, so like AOC, um, Bernie Sanders, Ilan Omar, and if you look at them, they are the furthest left that the system can possibly allow. Like every right winger hates them and secretly loves them, but really hates them. Uh, and even then, there are many shortcomings that they have that's not even just a question of like, ah, they're not far left enough that at the end of the day, if you are a senator, there are certain sort of concessions you need to make. You So every, like things like military spending budgets, things like um, even like funding ICE, like you can't not sign that bill, yes, because if you don't, your political base will be destroyed. That at a certain point, you kind of need to bend the knee to some aspects of the political system, even in as much as you want to do. And the, what that leads to is like, as, as much as I respect AOC as a politician, and I think she is an incredible person that's done sort of so much from bringing socialist ideals to the main stage, at the end of the day, all she can really do is tweet, which is not a, her own fault. Obviously, if she had more political backing, she would do more. But the point being is that like, even, even if you are an uncompromised politician, there's very little you can actually do because the people that run, like, especially going back to what you're talking about with the democratic election of, you know, if we look at Super Tuesday, Tuesday in the 2020 election, the entire democratic party folded to beat Bernie. That there were so many different candidates Bernie was winning, and then they all sort of combined to Biden, who was the sort of second alternative, who was more moderate, and then Bernie, and then Biden won. So the point being is that the the institution of the Democratic Party won't really allow any genuine, not even radical, like just genuine change to occur. So because of that, I don't have too much faith in the two party system to be able to deliver these things, but I do have faith in you know, extra, ex, extra legal politics. So like uh, the George Floyd protests, more meaningful reform has been caused by those protests than the last 40 years of electoral politics. And additionally, things like say workers strikes that are going on with Amazon and Tesla, uh, even just like across the world, the type of protests that are happening, those are the things that have been, that have historically been most effective and those are the things that are being most effective now. And when you solely looked at, at electoral politics, you know, it's, it's easy to be very defeatist because nothing's really going to change there. But if you look at the, the leftists on the ground making more material changes for people, that's what can give you some semblance of political hope. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very good answer to the question. Honestly, you know, I just don't know if the country is really ready for us to kind of admit that there has to be uh, a little bit of, of violence, a little bit of pushing, a little bit of protesting in order for there to be a greater good. You know, I just feel like the country as a whole, isn't it? It may be in time, definitely, as you know, obviously our, our generations continue. And as we pass on our ideologies to our next of kin, I feel like that um, is definitely something that could probably be uh, more easily expressed as we have more conversations like this, hopefully. Um, but yeah, as you said, I, I personally also, oh, whoops. All right, that's unfortunate. Um, Okay, funny. All right, stupid things are happening. Um, I personally also have no confidence in the two-party system. As someone who is obviously on the other side of the political aisle as you, really, um, I really don't believe that, you know, you, I feel like, and this is a little bit of a hot take, maybe not a hot take for you, but a hot take for like less, maybe less educated people, I don't know. Um, I feel like that the two-party system is a little bit of a form of censorship that you have a constituency, you have the selectorate theory, that if you were a Republican, you have to have this, for example, uh, base of, you know, religious followings and, you know, this group of people that you have to have in your base, a very small winning base in order to be able to maintain power. So I believe that as long as this 
again, as I keep citing, this political power grab is in uh is 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 happening. I feel like that it's really limited, as you said, extra legal uh, or extra political um, actions are really the only things that are going to truly benefit the country and even so on such a minor scale. So I believe that's a very good point you've raised. And you, you bring up President Biden. And I'm just curious because I haven't really asked many left leaning people what they think about President Biden. But I'll just give you my opinion as someone who didn't really fundamentally support him. Uh, in terms of what he proposed, just honestly speaking. So, um, but what I'm going to ask you about isn't really ideology, because obviously there's just a difference, and that's that's fine. Um, but what I'm going to ask is basically, do you agree with his campaigning strategy to essentially uh, make a lot of promises, like you know, no more kids will be deported, you know, we won't be. Um, will be trying to end racism and include and promote diversity and things like that. all of these promises. Do you think that was a viable strategy to unify the country? And kind of as a side question, are you satisfied with the performance he's, he's been doing to make those promises good? Because one thing I will cite against him is that the kids uh, that he uh, promised would not be deported and would not be locked up in cages since the Obama administration. They are still in the cages. They are still in the cages. You know, there has to be uh, some kind of, um, outcry for that which there definitely is so just your thoughts on his campaigning and his general performance yeah so i think first uh biden as a candidate or just biden as a sort of politician i think of the the 2020 elect uh nominees he's definitely the worst if you look at his sort of track record throughout history he was a ardent supporter of the crime bill which has sort of revealed itself to be one of if not the most racist piece of policy in US government history. Additionally, he was the main democratic supporter of the Iraq war and really continues to support it. He has very little to his name besides just being behind Obama, which doesn't mean much. But I also think secondly, his campaign strategy overarchingly failed. So the the sort of idea behind Biden as a presidential strategy is he's going to appeal to the center voters who normally vote Republican, but feel disenfranchised by Trump. They'll vote for him. He'll get the centrist vote who would be ostracized or or put off by Bernie. And that failed. Objectively, as a, a campaign strategy failed, more Republicans voted for Trump in 2020 than they did in 2016. In many ways, Biden Biden was not able to get those centrist votes. Those centrist votes either didn't vote or they voted for Trump. So Biden was supposed to win in a landslide, and he so was so close to like he really he was so close to losing. Yeah. In a way that you know all the stats thought he would win in a landslide, and what that shows us is you know the the whole point of Biden was okay he's going to be a compromise, but he's going to get the centrist voters, and then we're going to win. He didn't even do that. And we compromised for nothing because his entire strategy is just compromising with the right, which fails. Like he lowered the amount that the stimulus would be from $2,000 to $1,400 to get more Republican votes. And he didn't get any Republican votes. Mm. So now we're stuck with $1,400 and we got screwed out of $600. The point being is the entire campaign strategy and Biden as a politician is kind of a failure. That being said, certainly better than Trump. Like I voted for Biden because, you know, he is a preferable alternative to Trump. But, you know, when speaking about things now, Trump's no longer in office. Trump is not the person we need to worry about. We should be as free as possible to critique Biden as much as possible, because at the end of the day, Biden is worse than most Republican presidents throughout history. Like Biden is on the level of like Bush and Reagan as far as like conservatism goes and the way in which they're instituting their conservative politics into law. So I am, I'm very ardently against Biden, even if he is a preferable alternative to Trump. See, that's the thing though. And that's the big issue with the two party system is that you just basically cited him as a preferable alternative. And I really can't fundamentally agree with anyone who votes, um, for a candidate because there are no offense obviously a preferable alternative because it's not intellectual inherently it's just oh he's not him and that is the reason that we have that is because of the two-party system we only have two candidates all the other candidates say in 2016 were completely underfunded like look at the 2016 election like gary johnson and jill stein completely underfunded yeah like, third parties just can't win it's impossible it's 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 and it's fundamentally bad for the leadership of this country if we just have two ideologies and not a, a, a horizon of views 
one thing I will say is I keep actually bringing this up, like with my friends when we talk about the two-party system, is that uh, when it comes to the system of government, I would actually kind of appeal for more of a, a, a multi-party parliamentary thing. Because um, like, for example, in Britain, you'll see like a bunch of videos from like the sun where like, you know, you have like, there are two sides, obviously, in the House of Commons. There's an aisle that separates the two kind of things. But there are so many little factions in, in each side. There's obviously the Scottish National Party, for example, that diverges from the um, the liberal party. I forget what. The, oh, my God, I'm so stupid right now. Um, is it the liberal party? I'm, I forget. I forget what the what the what the left leaning party in Britain is called. But I know it's like the conservative party and uh, a likewise uh, uh, reciprocal. But um I feel like that, even though like maybe there's more gridlock involved in Congress, say, you know, there's more ideological conflict and maybe less things would get through. I feel like that is a preferable alternative to having a two party system where they might compromise and things may go smoothly, but it's not indicative of the whole intellectual picture. So just your thoughts on that. Yeah, I honestly, in a lot of ways, agree. So I, I mean, so fun fact about the aisle, uh, the distance for the aisle is is two swords lengths. And the idea is if a politician... Oh draw a sword and so did the other they wouldn't hit it that's just a random fun fact that's cool um but yeah in a lot of different other parts of europe because there's so many different parties what often happens is either parties will like split up or combine in order to sort of pass up a certain piece of legislation or just there's more aspects of representation so you just have more choices that you know the the the, the two-party system is a, is a deeply american problem that has has led politics to just be so pathetic like in America, just politics is just, is just really laughable because the average person is so politically disengaged. And even if they were to be politically engaged in a, an electoral way, you know, what are they going to, like, what are you going to, and I was having this conversation with my friend because I was saying like, you know, at the end of the day, like you, like any, if you say to yourself, I want to go into politics, you will achieve nothing. Pretty much. And that's not that's not a statement of like you aren't good at it. It's just there's very little any person can actually do. Like, what are you going to do? Are you going to campaign? Are you going to go into a are you going to become a politician? Well, congrats. You didn't go to Yale. You can't do that. But if you think about things sort of extrally, which is not to say we should ignore electoral politics, we shouldn't. I I disagree with what you said before about um, not voting because like, I agree that, like, the idea of, like, a forced choice between two people is bad, but at the end of the day, like, it exists. Like, we can't wish it away, so not choosing not to engage with it is mostly a symbolic gesture, but one that I don't blame people for making. But the point being is, you know, if you, like, you will do more to make the world a better place by volunteering at a soup kitchen once a month than 90% of politicians have done in their entire life. And the point being is like, if you want to make the world better, organize locally. Like uh, a great a great example is the Socialist Rifle Association. There's a variety of different chapters around the country, and they like where they work with soup kitchens. They 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 work together resources, but they also talk about like localized gun ownership and gun safety as a way to sort of train leftists uh, to have better forms of uh, self defense and self care outside of policing. And you know, joining institute or like say or like um when Texas. When the power went out and Ted Cruz literally fled the country, people were saved because anti-fascist groups organized with each other, got resources, and like went to people's houses to either get them in Airbnbs or provide heating and food for them. And the point being is like, you know, when when everything hits the fan and your politicians who pretend to care about you don't. The people that care about you are the people on the ground in your community. And those people, nine times out of 10, tend to be leftists, or at least historically have tended to be leftists. So I so I have a question about that. Do you think the very nature of them coming together, like, for example, the anti-fascists that you mentioned in Texas and the Socialist Rifle Association that you mentioned here? And by the way, it was the Labor Party, not the Liberal Party, not yeah. educated. Um, but um, do you the Labor Party is a... The way the Labor Party destroyed Jeremy Corbyn is a whole thing into itself. I'm not even well versed in that. So if you want to kind of take take a shot at it, go right ahead. But yeah, I'll, I could say that after what you were about to say. Sure, sure, sure. So do you think that the actions of, of that of that generosity of that communionship, do you think that's inherently only can only really be uh, manifested with left-leaning ideologies or do you think that local like for example let's say hypothetically like you know you have 
I don't know, stupid example, like the Republican Rifle Association, like the right-leaning equivalent of that. Do you think that because of their ideology, they would be held back from doing a specific generous thing like that? Or do you think it uh, it can apply really to anyone? It just tends to be the case that uh, left-leaning, uh, I guess you could say groups would, would do that. Yeah, I think it's because, you know, your ide- ideology compels you to do certain things that like right-wing militia groups are the people at the borders trying to kill illegal immigrants. Mm-hmm. Like they exist, they work with and alongside ICE. Leftist militia groups are the ones trying to feed people. And the reason why that's true is because leftist ideals compel you to care about your community and other people and to build mutual solidarity. Like that is built into your ideals because that's what you think makes a better society, while right-wing ideas are, you know, inherently more individualistic. That even if those those like right-wingers in Texas were helping people, they weren't going out and helping people outside of their sort of direct family per se. Mm-hmm. That while you know there are always examples of right-wingers helping people, I'm not saying like all right-wingers are inherently bad, individualistic, and will never help. It's just important to think about how historically leftist groups have been the one to care for the most disenfranchised like because at the end of the day built into leftist and communist ideals is the idea that we should pursue social equality and that requires you know giving up time and effort and space in order to help those less fortunate i think that's a you know i i really as someone who doesn't really identify with that ideology i find that to be a completely respectable point and i wish that you know, and this is also another, and this is kind of like the first time I'm really uh, going into this, but another reason I started this podcast was to try to give people a better understanding of someone who leans right, as someone who I want to be a compassionate, a very compassionate person. I want to see equality uh, locally and as high as possibly I can get realistically with American political standards. I don't want to be just labeled as a completely individualistic person just because I happen to agree a little bit more with one candidate than I do another. So I feel like Uh, What you described is definitely a valid point that one's ideology does compel them um, to, I guess you could say, uh, act in a certain manner. But um, I feel like, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I really have a a big counterpoint to that. I think that's, but okay, I do have a counterpoint. Would you mind if I ask a question? Sure, go ahead. Because it seems that we're agreeing with a lot of things. What are the sort of points that make you feel sort of confident in right-wing ideas? I personally feel, okay, Here's here's what I'll say to that. Um, the issue that I have with uh, the prominence of, I guess you could say, these left wing militias is that I'm skeptical that if this is applied to a national level or a, uh, I guess you could say, a governmental level, that too much power is put into the hands of the central authority. And I'm very skeptical of that happening. So um, when it when it becomes like democratic socialism versus, you know, I guess you could say, libertarian like like being socially libertarian and fiscally conservative that's a whole nother different debate but when the authority becomes centralized and and power and ruling with an iron fist become the uh the the modes of governing i feel very skeptical in that i feel like that would not create a society that's beneficial to all because when you rule with a centralized and with an iron fist uh i feel like you're not your one well one it's unethical whatever but two you're not exposing yourself to other like parts of knowledge that a decentralized government a truly decentralized government would have you're only focusing on a certain ideology and not other ideologies that in tiny ways may benefit a larger amount of people so i'm just skeptical of of that being be that's that's really why i hold to right thing values go on please yeah, I, I honestly think that's a really good point that, um, you know, it's always important to be self-reflexive. And that's why I, I honestly appreciate the perspective you're having with the show, because, you know, it really shows that you you do care about having a bunch of perspectives. And here, here's, I think, not a counterpoint, but just to say that the idea that leftism is inherently authoritarianism is, I think, a sort of misconception. So uh, I have, I focus a lot or focus, but I, I do a lot of research on the, like Fidel Castro and Cuban communism, mostly because I'm half Cuban. And something that I find so interesting is specifically in the past 10 years, they have tried to revamp the Cuban constitution. So what they did is they went to every single town and got local representatives and paid for their sort of like food and lodging and opportunities in order to sort of come to 
uh, discuss with all other community members in order to have the most holistic possible constitution. And it took them multiple years to be able to do this. But what ended up happening is they had a constitution and a political system that while it did have a centralized form of government, every on every level, that government authority was being checked and legitimized by the will of the people. That I think the idea, and like, yes, like, you know, you think about like, the, the, the later days of Stalin and the USSR, you know, being an authoritarian nightmare, I understand and I agree. But, you know, there's so many leftist groups that have accountability measures and ways that people are actually able to go to the people on top and say like, hey, we need to make changes. And then those changes get made. So I, I think, and the op and the sort of like flip side to that being is my perspective of right-wing views is, you know, for right-wingers, their entire if you look, not maybe not personally or individually, but if you look at it historically, their entire quest has been to destroy the opportunity for opposition. That if you look at, say, censorship under the Bush administration, yep. the way in which cultural products and political actors have been censored, you know, so much like censorship as a project, while it is very sort of authoritarian, tends mostly to be sort of going alongside, in my opinion, right wing views. You know something? I totally understand your justification. I'm not at all a Bush fan, you know, yeah. uh, and I'm not at all a fan of exactly how we've, you know, created our, our image according to, you know, the big stick theory with Roosevelt and South American and Latin American and other Latin American countries. Uh, and I'm not at all like a proponent of the military industrial complex. That's actually really the opposite of what I think. Um, again, um, what you're describing, I feel, for the mass of people to be able to go to the government and actually oppose them, and the checks uh, that you you cited, I feel like is inherently not authoritarian. So I feel like that's definitely a very good point. Uh, and I and I will say this: I don't, um, historically speaking, I don't like to just follow the misconception that all leftism is is communism. You know, Tito in Yugoslavia found a very good midway point between the West and the East. What, I don't know everything about the character of Yugoslavia. I'm only going off of what limited information. I know you definitely probably know more than me about that. But um, there are a lot of, you know, people who were formerly Yugoslavians, obviously now it's divided, um, that kind of attribute their well-being to his form of democratic socialism and his need for compromise and his uh, ability to stand up to authoritarianism. So when it comes to... Um, the differences between political ideologies in this country, I feel like we can all find common ground in a need for the people at the bottom to contact and oppose the leaders at the top. We can all find ground in some form of, of liberty, whether it's for equality or individual liberty, collective uh, equality or individual liberty. That's a totally different debate. And I feel like that just boils down to human nature and what we think is best for, that's just really a, a really philosophical debate. I don't think you can really break it down further than that. But I feel like we as Americans need to kind of come together more uh, as a little bit more in, in, in basically what we're talking about here is, you know, making sure that we as people, no matter what our ideologies are, have the ability to talk, have the ability to directly communicate with people in higher echelons of government. And that's not at all happening here. And I, you know, totally totally don't like, you know, obviously the Bush administration, his entire, and it's exactly what Eisenhower, another Republican, you can see there's obviously conflicts here. Uh, it's what he warned against. So, you know, I totally, totally understand your point with that. Do you think it's, it's possible, uh, and another naive question for you, do you think it's possible that people on both the right and the left, I think I have an, a general idea of where you would be on the political compass, somewhere like liber slightly leaning libertarian left or something like that, you know, somewhere around there. Um, but do you think that we can come together over our uh, opposition to authoritarianism and not and the central elite not being able to react to any opposition from the lower people? Do you think that the political opposition we see right and leftists, do you think that we can come together over that common viewpoint is my question? Um, yeah, honestly, in a lot of ways, you know, if you if you think about like, especially with what you were talking about with like the Iraq war of like or Bush, like there are Terrible. some even right wingers that are, you know, just objectively kind of just fascists that even even right wingers have to admit that they're bad. But what I also think when it comes to coming together, I think a lot of people that consider themselves on the right sort of aren't not because they're not educated enough or they just it's just a question of like the things that they believe they're putting their hope into the wrong people like very odd like even in a lot of ways like 
like oh. it's interesting yeah like when I, like th- hearing you talk of like you, you you say you're a right winger but and i honestly like to question like what are the sort of political figures that you look up to and think are a representation <laughs> because a lot of times what happens and i'm not saying like you're like uneducated or bad but because i've had this conversation with other people of like you know if you grow up in a household where you are ex- primarily exposed to right-wing ideas and you know, your either your parents or just your community is right wing, and then you start to develop your own. You filter it through the lens of I'm a right winger, but I believe this. That eventually, what happens is, you know, the people the people that you are investing your political energy into don't represent what you believe, even if you consider yourself a right winger and they consider themselves a right winger. I love that point. That's and exactly. You're you're really you're 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 kind of you're getting me right now because these are all things I've really been thinking about as of late. I really like I would formally say, you know, oh, wow. Like, again, when I was young, let's let's not let's put this into perspective. You know, uh, I would be like, oh, you know, I really like what Ben Shapiro has to say. Oh, I'm really like a just a straight, hardcore Trump guy, and a straight, hardcore Republic Reagan guy. I was never a hardcore Bush guy because I don't I do not fucking like Bush. But um, now that you really propose that question in excellent uh, formatting and really a, a way that kind of speaks to me, and I think can speak to a lot of people who are politically invested. I don't, I can't really find an ideal figure on the right that really speaks to my ideology. And I think there are far more examples of on the left, potentially historically speaking, that you can cite, you know, even like somewhere in a, in a very small context, let's say like the anarchists in Catalonia or something that you can find that are a little bit more of a, a better um, example of your ideology than say like, obviously like the, the phalangists in nationalist Spain, you know? So um I think that's a great point you bring up. And I think um, I'm really going to have to think about that over these next few weeks is which historical figure do I really, uh, what I really align with. And I, I really don't have one right now, but you know, I'll get back to you when I do, but. And I'm, uh, I'm very excited when you do have that to talk and discuss with you about that. Sure thing. You know something, unfortunately we are kind of approaching the hour time limit that I kind of like to prescribe for this, but this has really been one of the best episodes I think I've had. And I really appreciate you being so forthcoming, being so open to, you know, just a, a straight political talk like this, even if we don't agree on all points, I think we found a very good base to come together on is that the, the people, for lack of a better terminology, at the bottom, the people in the middle and lower classes need to find a way, um, some find, some form of way to be able to voice their opposition to the people at higher levels of government. I think hopefully what this episode stresses is that you'll find more people on the other side of the faction that tend to agree with you in this particular regard. So Harrison, it's been a, a total pleasure having you on this podcast. I really respect your uh, commitment to intellectual uh, you know, exploration and whatever, and all these mumbo jumbo words, but fundamentally, I really appreciate you being on the podcast. I think this is, was really a great episode. So any other uh, last comments or points you have? I, I just want to thank you so much for inviting me on. This was a wonderful conversation. I, I always love having discussions about politics, especially, you know, I really do appreciate the fact that you have a different viewpoint than mine because it's always, I feel it always important to test your own ideas that, you know, if you can't articulate to someone else, then you can't consider yourself someone who believes it. So I love this opportunity. You spoke very, very well. And so it's, oh, it's always a pleasure to talk to people like this. That was great. So, all right. Wonderful. Thank you for coming on. Episodes are going to be weekly, maybe Wednesday, maybe Thursday. I don't know, but a bing, bada boom, whatever. Like, comment, subscribe, yada, yada, you know, the whole spiel, whatever.